welcome, welcome. Happy Hunger Games. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Now, before we begin, we have a very special film brought to you all the way from the capital. Welcome back, pop culture theologians. You have made it to the second installment of our Hunger Games recap with the film Catching Fire. Um, we want to give a quick shout out to the Engaged Gays for hosting us. You can catch out a lot of great content there. And um, make sure you're following us on Twitter, um, both Pop Culture Theologians. You can find us on Twitter at Pop Theologians. You can find me at jerickson85. And you can find my girl Marcy, or I'm sorry, of Brent. Where can we find you, Mars? You can find me at I Am The Men Who Can, which is a Wonder Woman reference. And we all need a little bit of Wonder Woman in our lives. Yeah, we do. So, Marcy, what the fuck happened this week? <laughs> um... So it's been like a week and a half since we recorded the last one. So it was hard to pick the stuff that's happened this week. Um, but I wanted to start off with something that I think is great. So Time Magazine today put out its person of the year, right? And um, the shortlist was a little, a little, uh, it gave me palpitations because <laughs> Trump as always was on it. Um, Meghan Markle was on it. And I mean, Look, I'm a big supporter of Meghan Markle and what she's doing with the platform she's been given, but I just felt like it was like a really historic year. And so I was really happy to wake up and see that Time's person, persons of the year are the Guardians. So the Guardians of 2018, the truth tellers. Uh, this is journalists. This is folks who have spoken out um, against false narratives that are playing out um, in front of us. And... Um, I feel really strongly this was a really good decision. Um, if you look at the ways in which the resistance is showing up uh, in 2018, everything from um, Dr. Ford to um, Kashagi to the folks on the ground at like Stoneman Douglas, like it's just the truth, man. Like that is their weapon, and that is that is the only weapon you really can't defeat. Like, and so, I don't know, what do you think, John? I thought this was a great, great choice. I thought it was a great choice as well. I was tweeting up a storm for Dr. Christine Blasey Ford to be time person of the year, um, just for obvious reasons that we um, don't need to go into. But if I had to have a second choice, these guardians, um, the name itself is, incredible because they are protecting our democracy they are telling truth into the darkness they're screaming it into the darkness and they're not afraid to say what other people are are afraid to say or can't say um especially in countries um like we have like in the philippines right and everywhere else where there is an actual quote-unquote dictator even though trump's a dictator um literally killing people and so the fact that they are out there making sure um these voices are told is incredible. Well, and I, I think too, um, to kind of give a little bit of background to John's comment on the Philippines. Um, so this year we've seen quite a bit of, of um, kind of uprisings in, in places where queer folks are being um, persecuted. The Philippines was a really good one um, in regards to the community itself kind of rising up and saying like, regardless of what you're seeing on the news or whatever our government is saying, like uh, 
people who are using drugs are being killed on the streets. People who identify as anywhere on the spectrum of queer are being shot on the streets. Like this is what's happening. Um, a shout out to my friend, Sandra Cordero, who's actually, she's been doing border work with Mexico and um, watching her kind of live tweet and live stream the work she's been doing with uh, the immigrants at the border uh, who are seeking refuge. It again, like it's just, that is the only way we know what's happening. That's it. So yes, I'm very happy with the guardians. Um, another thing that happened this week is John, do you, <laughs> do you have a smoking gun or a smocking gun? Um, I have a smock gun um it's used for when i craft um but that's a different line of thought and our president is a fucking moron <laughs> you know like if this was like a comic strip or you know an snl like skit this would be so good but it's real life like this, human- is, real this is real life. life yeah this is totally real life um so I don't even know what to say. It's just so fucking stupid. Next. <laughs> Thank you. Next. Um, yeah, no, that's all I've got. So third thing that happened this week actually happened today. So James A. Fields, uh, who was the white supremacist who ran folks over in the Charlottesville riots. Um, I don't want to call them riots. They're protests. They just keep saying they're riots. Or um, Nazi rallies. Right, right, right. Uh, so he's been he the jury suggested that he get life in prison which i'm i'm good with that life in prison plus 400 plus years uh for uh murder right um and i was thinking a lot about this today um this is kind of bittersweet and i hope i explain this correctly this is a, absolutely the right call uh this was premeditated this is absolutely horrific this is a hate crime um but i keep thinking of people of color in this country who have watched their sons their fathers their brothers their husbands be gunned down with malicious intent and uh and a deep set hatred that kind of has funneled like what i'm going to call state state sanctioned violence and how we don't see justice for those folks and so it's weird because everything about this is right. The field sentence is right. Um, the outcry over it is right. Um, I just think that we should see this type of justice every day and we don't. Yeah. I want to say and follow up to what Marcia is saying. Um, the death of the murder of Heather Heyer in, during the riots, um, really struck a chord with both Marcy, myself, and Sarah, the co-founders of the Engaged Gaze, and we immediately kind of put up a toolkit of action items. And I, it was at that moment that I don't think I was ever going to go back. I was never going to go back to any type of passive activism. I mean, I wasn't there before, but that something spoke to me about that. And it still um, actually traumatizes me today when I see movies such as The Black Klansman, where the last 15 minutes of the film, if you haven't seen it, are genius, um, and how they really depict a lot of the stuff that is going on today that we don't think 
goes on because it's 2018 and it's not 1955, but we get confused. And I agree, James Field, sentenced to life in prison. Um, I hope he rots. I hope he rots in hell. Um, he's a murderer. He's a white supremacist. He's a Nazi. The people that were with him are Nazis. They should all go to jail. They are. There are no good people on both sides. The, people on the other side were Nazis and white supremacists and racists and hateful bigots. And that's how they need to be called. And the other people are on the right side of history. They express their First Amendment rights to be out there and protest against hate speech. Hate speech is not protected. I am very sorry to tell people that. I know people have a, a hard time understanding the First Amendment, but hate speech is very different than free speech. Um, and that is the moment where there was a line drawn in the sand for me and people that supported Trump that I knew personally um, were no longer a part of my life because um, we literally have the president being complicit in that murder and trying to apologize for Nazis. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Yeah, no, I, thanks for sharing that. Um, so for, for anyone listening, just to do a quick distinction, um, the, what makes hate speech different. And I know that there's people who, people that I, I love and admire their work and their um, activism and their intellect who will say, um, who will disagree with me. But for me, hate speech is that which can incite harm right? So that is the difference. Like, I legit don't give a shit um, about the, the like, philosophical technicalities of free speech. Um, if your speech incites harm and seeks to harm others or to, to kind of rile people up to harm others, that is not protected. And if it is, then we need to fix it. Um, and I don't know what that makes me, like, I'm pretty sure some people will say that makes me a straight-up communist. And uh, all right, let's do it. Call me a communist. I don't really care. Um, so yeah, and, and again, like, uh, to, to drive home the point, this is a great decision. This is a step forward. Um, but this is a step forward when a, when the situation was exactly what it needed to be to get that step forward. And we do need this type of justice for folks who do not fit the profile of the perfect case. And we talked about this with Dr. Ford and how, um, we have to look at the broader picture of justice. So, all right. So that is what's happened this week. Uh, there's been so much more that's happened this week. I gave up carbs, y'all. I'm really hungry. So bear with me. I'm eating tater tots as we speak for Marcy to hear me through the microphone. Uh, you're, you're like Tina with her tots. So, all right. So I'm like Tina with my tots. <laughs> we're gonna break down catching fire like we said we think it's a um we had this kind of break between our first season which was the purge um and our upcoming season and we felt really strongly that there's a lot still to learn from the hunger games um and we're excited because catching fire is both our favorite um both our favorite novels and our favorite films so john let's break down catching fire So this week, we will continue to break down what worked and what didn't work under the assumption that y'all have either read the books or watched the films. We kind of do a mesh of both. So we, we uh, I'm not sure, John, I can't sometimes separate what I've read and what I've seen. Um, so it yeah, kind of I'm the same. So, um, so let's talk. Let's talk about what worked for us in Catching Fire. Um, so Catching Fire is the second book, and it kind of starts off with, with Katniss and Peeta coming home post the Hunger Games. And y'all know what my favorite word is whenever we break something down. John, do you know what my favorite word is? You're right. <laughs> You're right is his two words, and I do love those. No, trauma. Trauma. 
So Catching Fire, I think the first half of it, um, which takes place back at home for Katniss, talks a lot and, and, and talks to us, the viewer, about how we process trauma. So no one goes through the Hunger Games untouched, right? No one goes through Charlottesville untouched. Uh, we, we become deeply affected by the things that we live through, particularly when they're extremely inequitable and violent. So I think a lot of uh, what makes Catching Fire work really well for me is that Peta, Hamish, um, Katniss, they come back from this horrible experience, right? They nearly died in, in the Hunger Games. Like, and they were willing to die. They were willing to die, which again, that does a psychological thing to a person. Um, and I say this as someone who I would like to say that I am willing to die for the things that I believe in, but that's very different than walking up straight to that line with some poisoned berries in my hand and saying, fuck you, I'm going to do it. Like this transgression, this act of rebellion is worth more than my life, right? So coming back, we see how hard it is, you know? Yeah, I, this was one, I'm glad we're starting off here with the trauma aspect, because that is the part that really, and we'll get to my, one of the things that really worked for me is the reluctant hero theme. And the reason why that is something really powerful for me in this film is the fact that they come home and you can see it. They're completely different people and I think the town itself is completely different because they have champions finally they didn't have one until Hamish and it's been a really long time and they've felt, dealt with a lot of stuff from the capital and here we have two champions a boy and a girl there's only supposed to be one champion technically and here we already have the breakdown of kind of like what the Hunger Games is supposed to represent there's one champion out of all the districts but now there are two so you can see the breakdown of that general thinking of society and the trauma that is present and this is i think my favorite film with jennifer lawrence in it in the series like she there was something about how she acted in this film that i really sensed that trauma in her i sensed it a little bit more in characters that are a little bit more professionally um put together at this time in their careers like jenna malone and all those other individuals that have been um, in this line of acting, but the trauma piece is so critical, I think, for not just this film, but all the films. Um, and I really enjoy that. This is something that we both agree on. Agreed. Um, and I think this idea of the reluctant hero. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about my own life as like a, I'm going to use like, I wish you guys could see how small this is. Very small scale activist, right? And, um, and how much of my my ability to transgress or to to put my body and myself out there how much of it is still tied to what binds me so like um the couple times that i've gone to protest um down here I've, I've spoken about this in other episodes there's a child detention center very close to my home um and the couple times that i've gone down there there was one time i got violent um and you know i'm not just there as myself i'm there as like my parents daughter right my husband's wife i was about to say girlfriend and he would kill me i like constantly refer to myself as my husband's girlfriend which is so dumb uh but i think it keeps us young um but the fact that like we don't there 
our activism, our transgressions, our bravery, our cowardness, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? And so I'm thinking in particular of when President Snow shows up at Katniss's house, right? And he tells her pretty much like, hey, so like you've got to keep the charade up forever. I don't believe you. Don't even try to lie to me. But you've got to keep this up because I know where your mom lives. I know where your sister lives. I know where Peta's family lives. I know where Gail lives. I know where Gail's family lives, right? Um, yeah. And so it's very easy and i see this a lot in um and i'm using exaggeration quotes in like woke circles where it's like um ride or die there's like very little talk about how part of the sacrifice of of becoming an activist a transgressor a reluctant hero is that you have to fight the innate nature to self-protect your family, to, self, to protect the folks that matter the most to you. And I think we see that with Katniss. I think we see like this double edge of like, there's a part of her that's just like, fuck it. I'm going to go into the forest. I'm going to take my family. I'm going to get out of here. Um, and even like, she wants to run. Like, but then there's, um, there's the part of her that's like, I like, and I think that part of her is the resistor. But then there's a part of her that's like, I have got to act by my society's laws to keep the people I love safe, regardless of the mass implications of that. Like, imagine knowing that your actions could change the lives of everyone around you, but put the lives of those closest to you in danger. We've seen heroes deal with that since the beginning of time, right? But like, it's, I think it's, it's, it sits with you when you watch these child protagonists play it out, right? So I find that to yes. be powerful. Um, because children are, we talked about this with the Hunger Games, but also when we look at our own world, like children are bearing the brunt of sacrifice right now. Children on the streets, children in schools, children at the border, um, children who are dying because their parents cannot afford healthcare, like at, across the board, right? So I think it's really powerful to, to have a reluctant hero and to see that the decision to do the right thing sometimes is not as simple as black and white. I completely agree. And this is where um, some of the my problems with the later films, there's a piece of me that thinks the second film is like always the third film. Like I always feel like there's some middle film because like it just feels like so much has happened and I always forget it's like a trilogy of books. But in the second film, like there's a piece here that I think is laid out really clear, which is why the later films and some of the books to the actual depiction of them on screen doesn't work for me. And that's the hashtag team Gale, right? So you can clearly in the book see there is a, is a love like for PETA, but the films really bring it forward. And I think the book does as well for team Gale. And that is why, and we all know you've already seen the films. That's why you're listening to this. We hope if you're not, I'm about to spoil it, that what Gale does in the last film and Marcy and I probably will maybe disagree on this, but we'll talk about that in later episodes. That's why the, the fact that she doesn't end up with Gale really bothers me because she's really almost to go to an extreme to keep up a farce to protect her family and her family is Gail and her love is for Gail at this point and that is something that sets her off in the film when she sees Snow has been watching her and Gail and they see the kiss that they and the embrace that they have because that's real and her you can you know Peta is in love with Katniss but I don't think that's reciprocated yet and so that's why a big problem for me in the later films is the role of Gail and this kind of dichotomy between Peta and Gail and really who she's supposed to choose. 
<laughs> You're such a hopeless romantic. I literally have like zero interest invested in this love triangle in this story. <laughs> but I do think we're actually going to disagree on um, on what it means to to act for the greater good. But anyone who's listened to us through Harry Potter knows that I I have issues with the greater good. So we'll we'll hit that when we get to some of the later stuff in Mockingjay. But um, so but speaking of the greater good, so. PETA and Katniss go off on this, like, um, I don't even know what's a call. Champions tour. It's like a tour. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause like, it's like, it's like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's like tour of like the Commonwealth, uh, except this is like survivors of like state violence. Um, but it's when the tour I do and I destroy my enemies. Right. Right. Um, I will be by your side when you take that tour. Um, <laughs> you but we get this really sweet moment where, PETA, I get, they get to meet Rue's family, right? And PETA is so overwhelmed kind of by like the loss of Rue, but also the inequity of her hometown. Like the fact that like, they're all starving. They're actually more oppressed and, and in worse shape than PETA and, and like uh, their district is. And I think that that's a reminder that like, the reason that they're all sectioned off is so they cannot relate to each other. There's no bridge building of the inequities and the oppression of the districts. But then we get a real sense of how much Ruse influenced the way that Katniss and PETA think because PETA offers like, what is it? Like a month of his, of his winnings to Ruse family for life. Yeah. And I think another thing that really struck me about Rue's influence on Katniss is that it isn't until that moment that I think she really starts letting some of this trauma really in to impact her and what they're supposed to say. Because, you know, they're supposed to give some canned speech, right? She can't do that when it comes to Rue. Rue was, like, Rue served as her sister that, you know, she volunteered for you know, for the games, the reason why she's there, and she failed Rue in a way. You know, Rue died, and and Katniss has a lot of guilt as a result of that that's also the first kill that she really does in the games um was when she kills that person who you know uh threw something at rue that ended up killing her right and she sees that in the beginning of the film you know it's traumatic when her and gail are out there hunting and i think it's also the fact that rue's community is mostly a community of color and you can see the segregation going on within this district and how that community itself i mean the two champions were african-american they were black right and you can even see how racist these types of institutions are that the capital puts out and the, the severe poverty stricken stricken neighborhood that rue comes from you see how much that really impacts katniss and Peta. yeah no a hundred percent um and i like that you bring up that like there is no shame in feeling deeply affected when the loss of inequity and oppression hits closer to home. Um, so that, like, I think the critique that, like, Katniss and everything, like, didn't know loss until Rue is, like, nah, dude, like, she grew up, like, in the sticks, like, lost her dad, like, lost a lot of folks, but, like, we all have a catalyst that moves us forward to become better people. And I do agree that Rue is that catalyst for her. Um, and I, I, I was thinking a bit about like, so we know that PETA and Katniss have been, have, have been asked to perform normativity for the sake of the state, right? So they need to pretend to be in love. They need to get engaged. They need to get married. They need to have kids in order to keep the pretense that this is what you do. This is what you do as a citizen of Panem. And, um, 
and I've, I've been thinking a lot about how, so I, this is going to be a little sketched out. So help me flush it out, John. But like, so often when we are at like uncomfortable conversations at a table, right. I'm going to think of like a Thanksgiving table, um, our first instinct and then the people around us, their first instinct is to perform niceties and to perform kind of like, ha ha ha, I don't talk religion. I don't talk politics. I don't do this. I don't do that. I keep the status quo for the comfort of those around me. Right. And how, how often we are complicit in that, right. We're complicit in keeping everything looking exactly like it's supposed to look. Cause we're for a lot of reasons, cause we're tired. Cause we're scared. Cause um, we literally cannot, drum up another ounce of, of resistance in us. Um, but the fact that like it is explicit in the hunger games, like I need you to act straight. I need you to act happy. I need you to procreate and to procreate means a lot to me because it means I need you to put a stake on the future with your future, which tells everyone else the future is safe. Right. And the fact that like throughout Catching Fire, we see this deconstructed and we see Katniss and Peta rejected eventually and be like, no, we cannot perform normativity in this type of, of horror, I think is really great. Um, and it calls us as, as viewers to question in how many ways we put a balm on things that we shouldn't. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's also that they are subjects of the capital. They will, right. the Hunger Games never escapes you. You can, you're never out of the games. You're owned by the capital because you won. You won by sheer luck. You won by sheer force, you know, whatever it is. But, and that's where Snow reminds people that they are they are owned they are owned by the capital they have to perform this for the rest of their lives and if they don't they're disposable he can kill them he'll kill their whole family because the performance of pan am right that keeps everyone quote unquote in line um is what's at stake you know and for him that's his greater good that's snow's greater good he's trying to keep order when all actually katniss and them see is actually the chaos right right um, and you look at like big institutions that have power, like like the Catholic Church, right? Their their inability to walk themselves out of like traditional marriage, right? And because everything else to them is chaos, um, and for people who adhere to the Catholic Church's teachings on, I'm, I'm like using really annoyed air quotes on traditional marriage, it's like. Um, they see no beauty in difference, right? They they require uh obedience and standardization of existence so um and and that is a common thread that we see in most oppression right um you look at at racism and it's like the segregation of people based off of make-believe lines of color you look at misogyny and it's like um the definite like uh hierarchy of the sexes you look at xenophobia and it's like there's there's you and there's the other so yeah no i i think i think you're right and um i actually want to take us to the capital to one of the things that has always worked for me since the first time i read this book um we talk a lot about unmitigated capitalism with catching fire and um tell me if the scene where they're at the party to celebrate the um Oh, and the puking scene, like if he's like, yeah. you take this to throw up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Peta and Katniss are at this celebration for the victors at the Capitol. And there's an ex I'm just an extreme amount of food, right? I'm thinking like Carnival Cruise type of buffet. And like, 
<laughs> I've never been on a carnival cruise. Is there like a lot of food? So like I was going to, I've actually never been on a carnival cruise. I've been on other ones, but like cruise food, like cruises are just an unending buffet. It's a, it's okay. I'm like a, I'm like obviously a golden girl. I live for cruising. I don't give a shit that it's not bougie. Like I live for cruising and for cruise food, but it, it does get to a point where I'll put it this one time on a cruise. I looked at, we were at the form, one of the formal dinners and I said, Hey, which one of these two desserts is better? The pistachio creme brulee or this chocolate tort? And my, our waiter who was this like really sweet man brought me both desserts, right? I'd already had like a six course meal for the next 17 days of my cruise. He brought me each dessert. There was usually five options. He would bring me all five because he said I shouldn't be without. And like, yo, like that was a great, that was a great trip because it was when I still had a metabolism, but like it was an right. that was outrageous. And so Peta and Katniss are, are looking at this buffet, right? And they're like, the first thing you get is a sense that all they can do is think of the folks back home who have no food, who have not eaten. Um, and like, they're both kind of like shocked at how everyone's just consuming, consuming, consuming. And then someone lets them in on a little secret, which is actually a nod to ancient Roman times. Vomitoriums were a very real thing in Rome for the rich, which was you eat, 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 and then you take a little pill or you take something to make you vomit so that you could keep eat, eat, eating. And, um, and this scene- I need that pill though, I, after the Christmas <laughs> holiday. I'm not saying I need that, I need that pill. But that's like American capitalism right there though, right? We eat, eat, sure. eat, we're gluttonous. I mean, Thanksgiving, the holidays. I mean, and then you look at hunger in the world, you know, it's just insane. A hundred percent. And I think for a lot of my friends, this is a scene that has stayed with them because it's a scene we can all relate to. I, you know, how many times a year do I purge my closet, right? Like maybe I should just stop buying clothes. Like how much of the food that I buy with really good intentions, cause I was on Pinterest and I was like, oh, I'm gonna meal plan. And then I throw it all out because I didn't meal plan and I spent my entire paycheck on Postmates. Um, we live in this like consistent consumer cycle with no connection to who is affected by it. So no connection to the kids making my fast fashion in Cambodia, to the, the farm workers in the breadbasket of California who worked real hard for me to throw away my tomatoes and my avocados. Though I'm not to blame for my avocado because honestly, I can look at an avocado and it goes bad, but whatever. Like we're just disconnected from it, right? And and Suzanne Collins does such a good job in the in this scene in the Capitol to be like, it's not just people like President Snow who are complicit in the harm of people. So are you with every single little decision you make every single day, including taking a bite of that pistachio crumb brulee. You know? Yeah, I completely agree. So that's, that's like a, that's very strong for me. And I, I think what's interesting is a lot of the world building for the Hunger Games is done in Catching Fire, not in the Hunger Games. Um, yeah, it is. That's why I think it's my, my favorite film. Me too. Me too. And so we get this, um, we find out that the Mockingjay um, pin, this Mockingjay has become a symbol of the resistance when we're in the Capitol, right? Plutarch um, lets Katniss know like, hey, like I'm on your side. Here's here's your symbol, and um, and I was thinking about how symbols in general historically have been associated with movements, right? Um, 
but like John, like if what what symbols do you see today of the resistance? Like I'm thinking of like really broad ones, like like the rainbow flag is a symbol that that now speaks loudly for a movement, right? Um, yeah, the transgender flag, the bisexual flag. I think you know the, the, the women. Yeah, the pussy hat, you know, the women's march symbol more more generally. Um, I think the handmaid's tail outfit. Oh yeah, I would say a handmaid's outfit. I mean, I've worn a handmaid's outfit multiple times to protest. Um, I wear one just for other reasons though. Hey. <laughs> but yeah, no, I've been thinking like I was going I was saying like the 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 closed fist for Black Lives Matter became um a bridge symbol actually because it does call to mind uh, symbolism of the Black Panthers, right? But um, but we think of these types of rebellions, like the Hunger Games, as like this amazing thing that happens in a different world, and and it's not happening in our world. And it's like, nah, man, like it's happening in our world. You're right. Like, um, Offred's uh, outfit as a handmaid is a very good image of something that started off. I mean, it started off transgressive, but now it's a symbol that transcends the book, right? Same thing for the pussy hat or for the fist, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's interesting how we're seeing this type of resistance and this type of like nod to each other um, at, at, in our world. Like I always know when I see someone who has, um, and I know that it was problematic, but people who had the safety pin, it was a nod to other folks of like, yo, I, I see you, I, I get you. Um, so yeah, yeah. So speaking of storytelling and how we make nods to folks, talk to me a bit. I know the propaganda worked real well for you in, in all three of the books and films. So yeah, I there's something about the way in which Stanley Tucci's character and how they sell propaganda and how propaganda sells the message from um, the first film doesn't really explore it that much, but you're introduced to it. But the second, third and fourth film um, on both sides really do show the power of propaganda from the capital using it to promote the victors to then president coin in the later films using it to promote the, you know, message of rebellion and that they can overtake the capital and the and the power that propaganda places in the Mockingjay, in the symbol of Katniss to sell this message of rebellion and hope. And that that's the reluctant hero, right? Like if you were to turn off the cameras and still be recording and see her, she would be completely not there. She's not that hero that they prop up on the camera and give speeches and says all this stuff. She's actually shy. She's timid. She becomes the hero. She becomes the person pushing it forward. But at the end of the day, it's what propaganda is used to sell so much. I mean, it was used in Germany. It's used right now. I mean, that is why places like on social media and all this stuff really are effective with selling a message that could be a lie, you know, or is a lie or, you know, is leading you down a certain truth that you want to know like what is the objective truth here like that is you know in the eye of the beholder i mean there is truth truth is truth <laughs> you know there are not multiple truths sorry uh rudy giuliani but you know that is what is going on yes i had this i knew this awful priest he was like a piece of shit who always was like truth is truth is truth and like as much as i hate him and as much as i wish him nothing but the best as far away from me as possible for the rest of my life. Truth is truth, right? And I, I agree with you. Yeah, so, um, and I also think like in the last film when they're like, everyone thinks they're dead and they try to use a tool that they are dead and propaganda. I mean, I think 
I really loved the use of propaganda in regards to what how President Coyne did, because you see the flip side. You see a dictator who's the president, President Snow, and then you see the dictator that President Coyne wants to be, the power grab, and how you can use tools to get to that. And um, it's really powerful. And Stanley Tucci, because he's an amazing actor and that character, much like Effie Trinket, disembodies the capital and the excess and the glorification of like, you know, this program that they're all going to watch and bid money on and have party over, parties over, right? The pink hair, you know, the gender queerness of his character. In addition to that, it's just really powerful. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think Something to, to think about is when you're talking about this, like, um, particularly the use of Katniss in, in propaganda, the use of our heroes in propaganda, usually those, those big selling messages are not what causes a movement. So like the idea that like Katniss with a, with a bow and arrow or a gun is going to motivate people to do anything is outrageous. It's small acts of resistance that fuel the fire, right? Like it was her grabbing some simple berries, right? It was the simplicity and like how of, of Rue's kindness and love, right? It's, it's very simple. Like we, we get wrapped up, you know, so significantly in big ticket uh, rebellion. And honestly, it is, look, uh, one of my mentors this week, um, I was in North Carolina doing some, doing like a racial equity learning, ex, like site visit. And um, one of my mentors who's taught me everything I know, and then some about racial equity and liberation and justice work said, you know, you look at Rosa Parks and, and you're like, Rosa Parks, like all she did was sit. She sat. That is her act of rebellion. And it changed. I mean, it, it, it quite honestly, it changed the world. And she, all she did was sit. Yeah. So we, we do what we can with what, what is in front of us and what we can do. And so, um, what a what a perfect way to kind of dispel the idea that their approach to, to, propelling Katniss into fame and, and, and this resistance hero was correct. Like, no, like the, the way she treated her sister, the berries, like I said, Rue, like that is where the resistance lies. That is dissent. That is the very that symbol of dissent. That is dissent. A hundred percent. Um, so then, uh, obviously the plot moves on with the quarter qual, which, you know, every 25 years, there's like a special Hunger Games and no surprise that they decide to pick all the victors and then Katniss and Peta end up going. Um, something for me that this, this is like, this is that like wink, nod, nod that all of us in the know did during the elections when we saw like, uh, communities of color fall to like election fraud, like, the only people surprised by that shit are like the dumbass is not involved. Every person in that community, everyone else in the know, like there's a sinking sense that like those communities can't win. And I feel like with the quarter qual, it's similar. Like it was like these, this is purposely being done to take these, these resistors out. Right. Yeah. And like, it's because president snow sees the, power that the victors have as a result of the Katniss and Pita Tor. And so he needs to get rid of these people because they are more powerful than he is. This image of who they are is more powerful. And that is why they're, and that scene where they announce what the quarter quell is and you see the look in uh, Katniss's eyes and 
you know, PETA and she runs out into the woods. I mean, I, it's one of my, it's a heart wrenching scene. It's horrible to watch, but it's so, it's done so beautifully. And that's why I think this is my favorite film. There's a lot of moments like that for me in this film. Yeah. And and so talk to me. So obviously we could sit here and break down all of the tributes. Um, There's a couple important ones. Uh, There's one. Talk to me about your favorite tribute. Uh, So all I have to say is that we are all Jenna Malone here in this film. She, oh my God, hashtag we are all Jenna, damn. I mean, like I was tweeting her while I was doing our rewatch and I think I was texting you at the same time, Marcy, that she brings some type of gravitas to this film with her character. I mean, like it is just a complete great choice of character. I, uh, oh my God, when I see this character in the book to what it is, how it ends up on screen. Jenna Malone plays it brilliantly. And that scene in the elevator after the games, which takes off her clothes and then she just sits there completely naked and she gives him a wink. I mean, just balls out to the wall, fierce fury, feminism, like a part of the rebellion, no stuff is going to fight, comes out of this traumatic side at the end of it, changed and unscathed and just as ready, you know, and that offer, that scene where she talks about, you know, they promised me if I won and I killed all these people, they would leave me alone. And here I am again, right? It's like that breaking of that promise that is wrenching and she just plays it beautifully. I love her. I loved her in Stepmom, first of all, um, which is one of my favorite movies, which sounds really weird because it's about death and all that stuff, but whatever. But she is an amazing actress. And that's what I'm talking about, like these types of actors that are in the film as kind of like, not a B plot because they play major parts, but they just bring something to this film that wasn't in the first film. You just made me realize like my favorite Jenna Malone movie is Life as a Castle. Life as a Castle. No, Life as a House. Oh my God, I'm so bougie. I changed that fucking title. Life as a House. It's a great, that's a great film too. And it's also about- I'm watching it tonight, listeners. We're doing a podcast episode. I love, I love that movie. Um, It's everything I love about films, but um, no, I think she was, she was cast perfectly. And I think when you look at the tributes, what we're really supposed to get is the idea of how difficult- becoming an ally to each other is in the movement, but also how necessary it is. So they all struggle with trusting each other, with like understanding that they're better together than apart because there's an instinct to self-protect, but they do eventually come around, right? So um, there's two particular moments that that I think highlight for me the power of allyship between the tributes. The first one would be Madge when she sacrifices herself for Finnick and for Katniss and Peeta. And, um, you know, uh, like pour one out, like a moment of silence for the elders that came before that have been doing this work and who will continue to do the work in front of us and take some bullets for us. Both I love Madge in the film. She's amazing. She's beautiful. And, um, and I think that, uh, again, my mentor this week in Charlotte said something that has struck with me. Um, I guess she was in New Orleans recently and she saw this, um, she saw, a. A graffiti that said um, resist and rejoice and I think that gets lost a lot like 
look, it is dark times. Like John and I joke around all the time that like, this is like depression 101. Like we're falling into like straight up anarchy at this point. Like we're run by idiots and fascists and whatever. Um, but it's been a hard year. And I think for a lot of us, it's hard to find the joy in resisting. But here's the thing. If there is no joy, if there is no rejoicing, why are we, what are we resisting for? Right. And so there's the softness in Madge, the sweet smiles that she has just in the simple moments of like drinking water, of like having a nice walk with Finnick in the forest. Like that stuff matters. And so um, I thought a lot about that with Madge and um, and her sacrifice, knowing that that if she took that sacrifice and she fell uh, to the fog, right, like these younger kids who will come up behind me can keep going and continue to resist in a way that I can't anymore. Um, so I think that's extremely powerful. Oh, I agree. She is incredible. And I loved her in Sex in the City. <laughs> Magda. Magda. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, see, I was super sheltered, so I didn't watch that show until college, and so it doesn't have the same ring to me as everyone else. Oh, I love that show. Yeah, Marcy, I, um, who else did you love? Well, we know. Okay, so Jeffrey Wright of Westworld, and for those of you that don't know, our John and my first foray into pop theology was actually breaking down Westworld. Um, we did that in, in written form on Engaged Gaze, but um, we are really obsessed with Westworld. Um, so Beatty is played by Jeffrey Wright. Um, and I, I can't help it. Like I start blushing when I think of him because I have like the, I have such an intellectual crush on him. Also physical, he's like gorgeous. But um, I like that Beatty, that he reminds us that it isn't just the loud people or the people that you can prop up like Katniss because she's stunning and whatever. Like there are introverts and, and unexpected heroes everywhere. Here's like an, a mechanical engineer, I, I, <laughs> metaphorical IT guy who's like, I got this. And he does. Um, and he reminds us that there's a reason that allyship is important. And it's because not one of us is the complete resistance right? Like some of us are orators. Some of us are behind the scenes logistics. Some of us are the ones who offer self-care to those around us, right? So BD, I think, reminds us that it's not just people like Katniss. It's not even just people like Finnick, right? Um, the resistance is varied and big and a wide net. Um, he is an incredible actor. Jeffrey oh Wright God. played um, Belize in my favorite play and probably piece of, you know, literature, Angels in America on the HBO, um, you know, rendition of it. And, you know, he's incredible on that. And, you know, he's incredible on Westworld, all of which, you know, you can see all of our season two recap on the engaged gaze if you want to go read it as well. Um, doing a recap in written form of Westworld is very complicated. So I definitely am proud of that work. But BD literally is showing how you need the nerd, right? Like just to be really simple, like you need that. That's why the high school nerd he's is always a, a part of the plan. <laughs> he's not a nerd. I mean, he's smart, but like he's, I, oh, I don't think he's, I guess he's nerdy. <laughs> well, like I'm saying like you need the character that you don't think is going to save the day because they will save the day. Right, right. Agreed. Like never underestimate those around you. Like, because everyone's like grabbing like knives and swords and arrows and like, he grabbed a wire. Like, and let me let me grab this Chaucer book. I'm gonna go read me, Chaucer at the moment. Let me hit y'all up with a little bit of Handmaid's Tale. Uh, no, for sure. He he is a reminder to us that like the 
there is no specific hero to ever follow. Um, I also think he's like very symbolically meant to remind us that like the risk of starting a big fire is that it might catch too big. Hence the catching fire. So the wire that BD grabs, they use to electrocute this like fence and rah, rah, rah. It, it's what allows them to escape the arena, right? But the problem is sometimes the risk is big and the payoff is big. The risk was if they used BD's idea of using this wire to electrocute the surrounding, you know, electrical fence, they would be able to be rescued from the arena. The problem was the um, effect of this was huge. So Katniss is rescued, but they lose PETA, right? And um, there is where Mockingjay picks up. But what's important to remember there is both Katniss and Peeta, what we're supposed to, I think, as, as the audience interpret, but Katniss misses, is they both took the risk for that to happen. And they didn't get the outcome they wanted, but that doesn't mean the risk wasn't worth it, and that they both didn't consent to it. So it doesn't mean that PETA getting caught by the Capitol is any less devastating, but when, when we as adults in, in situations of resistance put our bodies in harm's way, sometimes there's a very high cost, right? And no one likes to think about those high costs. Um, but, you know, what is, what is that Frederick Douglass quote where, you know, like, um, like those with power are not just going to give it up. It's going to take a lot from us. You got to take it. And that's where I think where Beatty, you know, is a, is a piece of the puzzle. And another piece of the puzzle we don't, we don't have time to talk about that worked for me is, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's role as Plutarch Heavensby, right? I mean, he is playing, he's, you know, undercover as kind of the game maker, but, you know, it's all a part of a larger plan. Katniss tells Hamish, get him out, you know, get PETA out. Like I, if I, you know, don't take me, take Peter, right? She's trying to sacrifice herself. And, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, this is one of his very last roles. Um, you know, I think the late, the last two films were his actual last roles. Um, but, you know, you see the different chess pieces being played on this move. And it's what really works a lot in this film is that it makes sense. The narrative makes sense. Agreed. I actually pulled up that Frederick Douglass quote because I, I just think it's a great way to close out what worked for this movie. So I'm gonna do the full quote because we often only get the final two lines. And it is, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men and women who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Frederick Douglass, 1857. Isn't that powerful? Powerful quote. Powerful quote. And to to tie it to the Hunger Games, the Hunger Games, be it children's literature or not, is so on point that that quote works perfectly for a children's story. But, and there is no more powerful quote, I think, in our kind of collective memory of, of freedom and justice and liberation than that quote. So... I've got, I've got a quote. Give it to me. Fuck the police. Get out of here. You're so stupid. I love you. <laughs> so really Powerful quote. Uh, it is. It is. Uh, so really quickly, because honestly, John and I both really love both the book and the films for Catching Fire. There's not a ton of stuff that doesn't work for us. Um, but, you know, I don't like One to- One or two things. I don't 
to end a podcast without bitching for a little bit, right? <laughs> uh, let me take a sip of my tea real quick. Sip it, sip it. Don't burn yourself, my love. Katniss and Peeta doesn't work. This is still something we discussed in the last episode. The casting doesn't work, and there's no chemistry. And uh, next, <laughs> thank you. Next, so for <laughs> me, the love triangle doesn't work. Uh, mostly because, unlike John, I'm not invested in it. Um, I look. I don't begrudge a girl finding some love on her way to. Well, oh, hanky panky. She gotta get hers. Right. Okay. You. I mean, no one liberates their people without a little bit of something, something on the side. But um, it, a lot of it just there's some some character issues that I'm like, if this doesn't make sense. Like honestly, I think if the characters we meet in book one are real, then Gail and Katniss would have probably run, made a run for it. There's no logical reason to me. For, for them going back into the quarter qual. Um, also, like, Peta seems oddly angry about a situation that, like, he's very angry at Katniss over, like, the fact that he feels betrayed. And, like, to me, that makes no sense. Peta seems like a smart guy. Like, you're fighting for your lives. But, like, that, if he didn't know it was performance, there's something wrong with his character. Um, and I don't particularly like the idea that she's confused between two boys. She's fighting for her life. So I'm not particularly sure she actually cares. So, uh, the love triangle doesn't work for me. Um, John, I think you had told me that you didn't think district 13 worked. Yeah. Like I know in the books, it's a lot more spoken about. It's kind of like this hushed, like, you know, this is what happens when you rebel. Um, and then the film, this is my one critique of the film really is that it's just like there, like all of a sudden they're headed to district 13 and it's like, huh, what's going on? Wait, where, um, you know, we're going to Encino. No, I, you know, Encino's fine. But like, you know, it's like, why are we, where, what, huh? It just, the setup isn't there. And I just think it's because they probably lost time or maybe there's a cut scene, but like the district 13 stuff has a little bit more of a setup or a little bit more, of a reverence in regards to like what type of a symbol it's supposed to serve in regards to the rebellion and it just wasn't there for me i i totally get that and in, speaking of things that just weren't there for me this pretend baby was not there for me if everyone remembers Peta lets everyone know that him and katniss are expecting a child and so that's done really strategically to kind of drum up sympathy for them as they go into the arena and I understand it as a tactic, I think it was written very sloppy. So there's very little attention paid to how that would impact Katniss um, and children are currency in Pan Am. And this definitely plays out later on in Mockingjay, but like, I just, I don't, I don't think enough attention was given to that plot point. And so that doesn't work for me. Yeah, it doesn't work for me either, especially with how children in the last, last film are used. Right, right. And then two superficial things for me. I don't think they were able to show kind of the magic of this revolving clock arena. Um, but I'm sure that was difficult to do. And I know these were low budget films. They don't seem low budget, but they really were. And then the casting of Finnick. I was invested in the casting and I really wanted Jesse Williams. Um, but but I'm, I'm good. Uh, that's like a minor quibble. But like, honestly, you can see, like, John, we don't particularly have issues with Catching Fire because it's, it's a great film. It's great. And it's a great book. And so it really works for us. So, all right, y'all, that is our full recap of what worked and didn't work for Catching Fire, the second book in the Hunger Games trilogy. Um, we will be back next week with uh, a breakdown of the Mockingjay books, book 
and movies. So um, we'll do that as one collective episode. So there's only one Mockingjay book. There's two films. Honestly, John and I don't think there's enough good shit in the films to actually do one full episode. For example, I hate the whole part one. It's an awful film and you're only doing it to get to the last scene, which is I have made into the best gif ever, but you know. Share that on Twitter. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to. Oh, I I believe you. Uh, We will be back, y'all. But thanks for for sticking with us. We know that our recaps are not your normal recaps. We tend to do a lot more of a holistic equity and justice breakdown. But um, we love you guys listening, and we will be back. So, you know, three-finger salute to uh, the resistance. And may the odds be ever in your favor. (laughs) 